Good morning. This is Northern Light for Monday, February 27th. I'm Monica Sandreski. And I'm Todd Moe. Governor Kathy Hochul's recently released financial report shows New York with a healthy nearly $9 billion surplus. But fiscal watchdogs, as well as Republicans in the state legislature, say that won't last. An emphasis on restraining spending now and trying not to grow those gaps any further is really, really important. It'll make closing them in the future easier. Also, the longest-serving town supervisor in Essex County is retiring at the end of this year. We'll talk with Tom Scazafava about his time serving Mariah. In some states like Vermont, you can get a referral bonus from the National Guard, where recruitment fell thousands of troops short of its goal last year. By putting in the right checks and balances in place, we could really help make every single guardsman a recruiter by paying them a bonus for anybody that they bring into the organization. Obviously, you would definitely want to incorporate a firm set of rules and orders and really set the terms and conditions. And we'll talk with a North Country writer who publishes a column in a German magazine about her experiences in a small American town. It's all coming up on Northern Light. Stick with us. Broadcast in Northern Light is supported by the Village Mercantile, Saranac Lake, partnering with local nonprofit organizations to sell their merchandise through their e-commerce store, villagemerc.com. And by Apothecary Chocolates, making gourmet chocolates by hand from all-natural herbs, botanicals, and tree syrups, apothecarychocolates.com. This is Northern Light. I'm Todd Moe. The state budget is due in just over a month. Governor Kathy Hochul's recently released financial report shows the state with a healthy $8.7 billion surplus. But fiscal watchdogs, as well as Republicans in the state legislature, say that won't last. As Karen DeWitt reports, they're urging caution when it comes to spending. Governor Hochul's proposed $227 billion spending plan is 2.4% larger than last year's budget. She wants to increase school aid by 10% to fulfill a promise to carry out a court order to fully fund the state's poorest schools. She also wants to increase health care spending, including on the state's portion of Medicaid, by 9% next year, or nearly $3 billion, and by 14% in the following year. That's higher than the average growth per year under her predecessor, former Governor Andrew Cuomo. This year's surplus is due to higher-than-anticipated tax collections and leftover funds from federal relief packages. Hochul says that's enough to pay for the increases, but she says she knows that won't last, and she says we can't count on the sun shining forever. The umbrellas are out. A majority of economists are predicting a recession. But the good news is we're prepared. Hochul has already increased reserve funds from 4% of the total budget to 15% by the end of the new fiscal year for a total of $24 billion. Patrick Orecki with the fiscal watchdog group Citizens Budget Commission says the governor is smart to set aside money for the future. In the short term, accelerating the deposits to the reserves are really, really good thing. That's big. Um, and being prepared for a recession is really important. But he says the reserves 
reserves aren't enough to offset the proposed spending increases that he says will cause a fiscal cliff. He says that could cause deficits as large as $9 billion in just a couple of years. Arecki believes the higher-than-expected tax revenue collections are an anomaly because of the changes to deducting state and local taxes from federal tax returns, known as SALT. He says the governor's own budget office predicts that tax revenues will start to decline beginning this year. The budget office also expects more bad news, wage growth to slow by 2.4 percent, and Wall Street bonuses, which are a significant source of tax revenue for the state, could decline steeply by 27 percent. Traditionally, the governor's budget proposal represents the floor for state spending, and the legislature then tries to increase it. But Arecki says lawmakers would be wise to curb that impulse this year. An emphasis on restraining spending now and trying not to grow those gaps any further is really, really important. It'll make closing them in the future easier. The state Senate and Assembly are due to release their spending proposals on March 14th. In Albany, I'm Karen DeWitt. About a half dozen states, including Vermont, are trying something new to attract recruits into the National Guard. They're paying finders fees to people who help bring in new troops. Some National Guard leaders want to roll out a similar program of referral bonuses nationwide. Desiree Diorio reports for the American Homefront Project. The National Guard came up 9,000 troops short of its recruitment goal last fiscal year. More than half the states missed their goals by 40 percent or more, according to the National Guard Bureau, the federal office that oversees the state guards. To bridge the gap, some states have resorted to paying out referral bonuses to non-recruiters, finders fees. Captain Michael Arkovich explains how the program works in Vermont. It amounts to a $1,000 payment if a recruiting assistant, as they're called, enlists anybody into the Guard, basically from the connection all the way up to initial entry training. The recruiting assistants are not full-time recruiters, but they do have to be affiliated with the Vermont National Guard. Active or retired troops can bring in leads, and so can the Guard's civilian employees. We have vacancies to fill, and having everybody contribute, or at least have a program that offers incentives for everybody to contribute, is value-added. Arkovich says the program has brought in 69 leads so far and paid out more than $50,000 in bonuses. He says localized oversight protects it from fraud and abuse. The recruiter is a check and balance. The recruiting battalion has a checks and balance. And the payments are run through the Vermont Military Department. The Virginia National Guard has a similar bonus referral program, except any Virginian can get a finder's fee up to $750, whether they're a member of the Guard or not. Lieutenant Colonel Scott Nivens commands the Virginia National Guard Recruiting and Retention Battalion. He says six people have signed up to refer recruits since the program launched in September, and they've generated a handful of leads so far. A nice paycheck for referring someone to our organization. We're looking forward to more success as we go forward. A federal-level finder's fee program used to exist. It was called the Guard Recruiting Assistance Program, and it brought in 130,000 new recruits from 2005 through 2012. 
But the Pentagon shut it down after an investigation revealed millions of dollars in fraudulent payments, though some of those who were accused of abusing the program deny any wrongdoing. Despite the program's troubled past, senior leaders say they might bring it back. General Daniel Hokinson is the head of the National Guard Bureau. By putting in the right checks and balances in place, we could really help make every single guardsman a recruiter by paying them a bonus for anybody that they bring into the organization. At a roundtable discussion in September, Hokinson said a reboot would require careful planning to eliminate any opportunity for fraud. But at the end of the day, the program was a success. Obviously, there were lessons learned that we would definitely want to incorporate. We want to basically have a firm set of rules and orders and really set the terms and conditions. The Vermont and Virginia Guards say their programs protect against fraud because they operate on a much smaller scale with multiple layers of hands-on oversight. I'm Desiree DiOrio on Long Island. This story was produced by the American Homefront Project, a public media collaboration that reports on American military life and veterans. Funding comes from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. You're listening to Northern Lights here on North Country Public Radio. It's coming up on 10 minutes past 8. Good morning. I'm Todd Moe. And I'm Monica Sandresky. Coming up in just a minute, a conversation with North Country writer Ginger Kunzel, who publishes a column in a German magazine about her experiences in a small American town. That conversation in just a few minutes here on Northern Light. This is a group called the Buskers out of the Thousand Islands. You can hear more of their music, part of our underscore project on our website at ncpr.org slash underscore. Northern Light is supported by St. Lawrence Health, committed to keeping the community healthy and safe by providing vaccines for patients to strengthen their defenses. St. Lawrence Health System.org. And by the Alzheimer's Disease Caregiver Support Initiative, introducing the Caregiver Wellness Program, offering activities to caregivers in Clinton, Essex, Warren, Hamilton, and Washington counties. Wehelpcaregivers.com slash wellness dash program. The U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development awarded about $5.5 million to a local public housing authorities in the North Country on Friday. That money will go towards improvements to making housing better for families and seniors and modernizations like energy efficiency upgrades. Some of it will also fund construction of new public housing units. The $5.5 million the North Country will receive is part of more than $3 billion total dollars going to public housing authorities throughout the country. 
A dental office in the Adirondacks with about 2,000 patients is shutting its doors. The Adirondack Health Dental Care Center in Lake Placid will close sometime this spring, according to the Adirondack Daily Enterprise. The hospital told the paper that it had staffing and financial problems. Adirondack Health loses about $350,000 a year from the dental center. An employee said patients are being told the Lake Placid facility will close on May 1st. The longest-serving town supervisor in Essex County is retiring at the end of this year. Champlain Valley reporter Kara Chapman spoke with Tom Scazafava about his career serving Moriah. Tom Scazafava was first elected Moriah Town Supervisor in 1985. He left in the late 90s to work in the state prison system as an electrician. But several years later, he found himself concerned with where the town was heading. You know, and I came to talk to the then-supervisor and... Uh... You know, and he said, well, if you think you can do a better job, then run. So I took him up on it and, and came back. <laughs> and he's been there ever since. Skazafava spent more than three decades at the helm in Mariah. He announced last week that he's not running for re-election in November. Skazafava says he was there for some big moments in Mariah and Essex County. Things like navigating the closure of Adirondack Park landfills and the dissolution of the village of Port Henry. Under his watch, the town secured millions in state and federal funding for its extensive infrastructure. And Skazafava remembers having to sell people on the prospect of the Mariah Business Park. When I first proposed that to the, uh, you know, to, to the town board, my constituency, that we, uh, that we develop an industrial park on this empty field um, located in the hamlet of Mineville, it was, they referred to it as Skazafava's Field of Dreams. So you know, it took a lot of heat over that. But he says the park's been a success, thanks to the efforts of many people. One big focus for Skazafava during his last 10 months in office is the future of the Mariah Shock incarceration facility. He says he lobbied for the opening of the prison when he was first elected in the 1980s. The state closed it last year, citing a decline in the inmate population statewide. I mean, one of the biggest disappointments, probably the biggest disappointment that I have in all the years I was in office was seeing that facility close because I think that was a huge mistake. Skazafava says selling Mariah Shock would require a constitutional amendment, so the most feasible option is for other state agencies to use it. He wants to take his concerns about the facility's future directly to Governor Kathy Hochul. As for the timing of his departure, Skazafava says it's time for a change for both himself and the community. You know, it's not an easy decision. I mean, I've given my heart and soul to this community. It's, it's been my life. But he says he's not leaving town. He still loves Mariah, Essex County, and the North Country. Kara Chapman, North Country Public Radio. You're listening to Northern Light right here on North Country Public Radio. I'm Todd Moe. And I'm Monica Sandreski. In just a minute, a conversation with Hague-based writer Ginger Kunzel about her column in a German magazine. After that, stick around for Bird Note coming up at 842. But first, Todd has a look at the weather for us. Yeah, the Weather Service says uh, partly cloudy skies today and uh, actually a mix of clouds and sun with uh, temperatures this afternoon in the uh, in the 
in the uh, 20s, low 30s, and then tomorrow maybe a high near 40. The Weather Service says uh, lows tonight in the teens, low 20s. Some snow, light snow tonight, heavy snow possible tomorrow in the Adirondacks. Uh, and then maybe a wintry mix elsewhere tomorrow with snow, sleet, maybe some rain, highs tomorrow near 40. And it looks like relatively mild temperatures and that wintry mix continuing Wednesday and Thursday. Right now in Canton, nine above. For years, North Country writer Ginger Henry Kunzel has been publishing a column in a German magazine about her experiences in a small American town. But how do you paint a picture of the North Country to people who have never set foot in the U.S. and for whom English is not their first language? Uh, Our Mitch Tag caught up with Kunzel about those challenges and her new book, Downtown. Well, thank you for having me. So we are talking about the collection of essays called Downtown, which is about a fictional place by that name. Can you explain where that name came from? Because it seems like an unlikely sort of name for a very small community in the North Country. Yeah, it uh, came about because I didn't want to use the name of the town I write about, which I'm happy to say here because I like to promote the town. It is Hague, which is on northern Lake George. But uh, a lot of the people in there might find themselves. Nothing is uh, (laughs) nothing's really bad. And it's sort of a composite of the people that live there. And so the first chapter of the book actually explains I actually was on the town board in Hague for uh, one term and then decided not to run again. Uh, So the the first chapter talks about how the name came about of the town because it originally was called Rochester. And then another larger town in New York State came up with that name as well back in the day. So Hague had to come up with a new name and nobody really knows how they came up with the name. So I decided to name it Downtown, which comes from all the geese that hang out in our town park and on people's lawns. And the town board decided to um, come up with ways to uh, use those geese in another way, uh, for instance, to make Grey Goose vodka uh, with the <laughs> clear spring waters of Lake George or to perhaps start a down industry, which, of course, we need in the North Country, that sort of thing. And there was quite a debate in the town board on that in the book. <laughs> <laughs> well, what got you started writing about it? So I write a monthly column for a German magazine um, that focuses on English-speaking countries. And I've been doing this for about 20 years, so I have a lot of uh, columns, and a lot of them are about Hague and life, well, basically life in a small town. And I wanted to do something with those columns, and so I thought, well, I will create a mythical town and use those columns, which I slightly rewrote to make them all fit into this concept. Also, uh, one of my friends and I used to sit in the one bar in town and think about how we could write about Hague. And everyone would come by and say, oh, we hear you writing a book. Are we in it? And depending on how we answered, they were offended. <laughs> so if they weren't in it, they were offended. And if they were in it, they didn't really want to be in it. I was so. just going to ask whether whether their, their being in it was a good thing or a bad thing. Yeah. <laughs> Still open for question. <laughs> so so the idea with the columns in this German magazine was kind of trying to uh, to, to give people a flavor for small town American life. 
Yes, that's correct. They weren't all like that. I pretty much am given liberty. I still write them. I'm given liberty to write about whatever I want. They just want things about America. And so because I was living in Hague um, and didn't leave very often, I mainly ended up writing about Hague. <laughs> so um, perhaps the Germans have a um, yeah different view of small town life than is actually correct, but that's okay. <laughs> well, yeah, I was wondering whether whether that kind of assignment got you thinking about the place that you live or or now live part time, being able to look at Hague from from thirty thousand feet. That's a really good point, and um, it did make me with with all that's going on in the country. It did make me appreciate the fact that. Like I said, I served on the town board, so I was of one party and everyone else on the board was of another party. So there were a lot of disputes, but we managed to get things done. And basically, I find that in small towns, people put politics aside when need be, and they're there to help you. And you don't necessarily find that in the suburbs and in big cities. So I am a huge Small town fan, and I basically am moving back full time to Hag. I tried Florida, and it's not my thing, so moving back. <laughs> this seems as good a time as any to have you read a little excerpt from one of your stories in downtown called "Property Management for Snowbirds," which kind of gets at the heart of what life in Hague might be like over the winter. Yeah. So. Um, that's true. And in the summer, there are a lot more people there than in the winter. And um, the people that are there in the winter, um, you know, they know the people that are there in the summer. So they wanted to let them know what they do during the winter, because everyone in the summer when they leave says, well, you poor people who have to stay here. So we wanted to let them know. So um, this was written shortly before the people came back for the summer. Since we know that many of you will be heading back to downtown very shortly for the summer season, we thought it would be a good idea to update you on some things you might want to know in terms of your house here and what you might want to consider bringing with you when you return. Janet and Brian, we discovered that you moved your key to a new hiding place before you left last fall. You rascals. To be honest, it was a bit of a nuisance when we arrived at your place for our party and the key wasn't in its normal spot. We were highly motivated to find it since the mercury was hovering at around 10 below and we needed to get inside. We did locate it pretty quickly, so no worries. In fact, it seemed a bit too easy and we worried on your behalf, of course, that burglars or other undesirables might have no trouble finding it. So we decided that it would be best to hide it in a far safer place. Good luck finding it when you return. Susie and Peter, the liquor at your place was really not the best. In fact, we even thought we might have to go out and get some replacements. But the roads were icy and there weren't any liquor stores anywhere close, as you know. So we had to settle for your bottom shelf stuff. But come on, do you really serve that rock gut to your guests? We suggest that you stop on the way up here and get some better quality booze. You'll need a new supply anyway, since we managed to polish it all off. It wasn't easy, but somebody had to do it, and we knew that you'd thank us. Uh, what are the other things that inspire you, inspire your writing, besides life in small towns? Really the environment and politics. Um, those are really the three things I write about most. And and I think just being observant about what's going on in society, internationally, but locally, nationally, um, it, I find being a journalist has the advantage of you're always 
watching for things and people expect you to ask questions so they don't feel like you're prying. I love being a journalist. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's licensed to be nosy, right? Absolutely. Ginger Henry Kunzel is a columnist and journalist for a German magazine. She's based near Lake George, and she talked with Mitch Tyke for the latest edition of NCPR's podcast, Northwards. Subscribe anywhere you get your podcasts. doesn't sound baby until that lucky day you know darn well baby I can't give you anything but love oh every time it rains and rains pennies from heaven baby love don't you know which cloud
I can't give you anything but pennies from heaven. Annie and the hedonists, they're in the uh, Lake George, uh, Saratoga Springs area, yeah. and uh, I know they have a schedule of uh, outdoor events. They're usually at the racetrack in the summer months. Just a fun, fun group. Yeah, they're very good nature. Had a have a good energy, and Todd, I gotta say, I love seeing how much you enjoy <laughs> listening to Annie I, and the Hedonists. What are you talking about? I'm dancing in the studio <laughs> here to the great music. I love it. I it wouldn't that. be Northern Light if exactly. there wasn't dancing in the studio. <laughs> Well, time coming up now on 827. Don't forget to tune in this afternoon to The Dean's List, indie rock through the years. The focus of the show is usually on new and emerging artists in the world of indie rock, but this week will feature a special throwback episode. Join host Doyle Dean and cruise through the years, listening back to groundbreaking artists like the Velvet Underground in the late 60s, to Radiohead in the 90s, and Big Thief in the 2020s. Last week, he played a little bit of the Stooges. Time travel, alternative music style to close out this month on the Dean's List. That's this afternoon from 3 to 5 here on North Country Public Radio. Visit our website and check out uh, our artwork of the week. It's right on the front page, ncpr.org and I want to point out that right now we've got work by a work by Danielle Johns in Potsdam it's uh, called Offering it's graphite and pastel on paper and you can check out Danielle Johns's work at SUNY Potsdam's Gibson Gallery through the end of March you can get a preview by checking out some of her art right now uh, as our artwork of the week that's at ncpr.org it's 829. Thank you so much for joining us for Northern Light on this Monday, the 27th of February. If you miss an episode, never fear. You can listen back to the archive any place you get your podcasts. You can also subscribe to our daily news roundup, Story of the Day, where you'll hear the biggest stories in our region and get the latest on the day's news. You can also listen live to Story of the Day every weekday afternoon at 548. Thanks for joining us today. I'm Todd Moe. And I'm Monica Sandresky. Be well.